If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now plead with God to be gracious to you. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors, that you would not light useless Loose, useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled, and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we pray, would you incline our hearts to your testimony? Would you open our eyes, Lord, that we could see marvelous things from your word this morning? Uh, reunite our heart, Lord, in the fear of your name, and satisfy us, Lord, by your love, we pray. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, you, you may have heard that uh, Queen Elizabeth II died. Um, I hope I'm not breaking that news to you. I hope not. Um, I've been kind of fascinated at uh, the, watching the procession. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, the last I heard, and my children tell me that it's far longer than I, than I thought, um, but the last I heard, it's a 14-hour wait, and the line stretches five miles long. It's kind of amazing, and it's been that way for, um, for several days. Um, I don't know if you have that, that picture, uh, John, I put up there. Uh, this is sort of a, a moment. You can see the procession coming on either side. Um, and you get, I mean, you wait 14 hours, and, and I don't know that they, they even let you stop for more than a, a brief second, uh, and then you, you, you move along. Uh, and, and so... Uh, there's been a lot of discussion, of course, about um, monarchy and the legacy of monarchy. Um, I am not going to get into that this morning. Uh, I invite you to have that in the lobby afterward. Um, but, but, but the reason I raise this is that there's no question that the death of Queen Elizabeth II, there's no question that, um, that in some sense the monarch remains at the center of British life. Uh, there, there's, and, and, I, and I raise it because it's a picture of ourselves at the center of every community, at the center of every nation, at the center of every person, there, there's a, a place of worship. There's a, play, there's a center. 
Uh, the Bible describes it as that place where all your mind, your heart, and your soul, and your strength is devoted to. There is some place within you, a center, that, that is, is, um, is a place of worship for you. There is kind of a, a British cue in every person, right? The, cue, the, the Brits uh, love to call lines cues, uh, if you're not familiar with that. There's a, there's, there's a British cue inside your, your, your soul somewhere where all of your being is waiting to line up to, to pay homage and worship something or someone. And, and the, prophets, uh, the prophets are an excellent opportunity to ask sort of these broad, sweeping life questions. Uh, do you know what is at the center of your life? And, and the second question that follows from that is then, does your life represent that? Does it confirm what your answer is? What's at the center of your life, your heart, mind, soul, and strength? What would you say to that? And then does your life actually testify to the truth of that? Uh, the claim of the Bible, the claim of the Christian faith, is that there's, uh, there's actually only one person who's worthy to be at the center of your life. There's one, one God who is worthy of all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and the text that, that Anne read, the text today speaks to a people who, um, on the one hand, serve God, um, they want to serve God, they want to center their community on him, um, and yet their life demonstrates something else, that, that that is in fact not the case. They have not centered on him. They've, they've fallen into to a gap between their answers of who their life is to be centered on and what they're actually doing with their life. And one way to describe that gap between those answers is spiritual apathy. Uh, we, we become apathetic in our spiritual life. So I wonder if you're here this morning, if you can identify with that gap. If you're here this morning, the chances are high that you have the right answer to the question, who, should be, who is at the center of your life? God bless you. Um, but, but, chances, but you know that that gap is real between what you know the answer is and what your life is actually saying. So how does God speak to us? Um, how does he speak to us today? How does he speak to this apathetic community? Um, we're going to look at it under three headings you have in your outline. The signs and symptoms of apathetic worship, which is going to be where we spend most of our time because that's where most of the text is. Um, that's sort of the nature of this prophetic passage. It, it, Anne was even reluctant to, she said, she said before she read it, she said, it's just so harsh. <laughs> uh, and it is. It's a harsh word. Uh, but but there's, there's also freedom here, the freedom of worship. Um, and then there's the mission of worship. Those are our three headings. Uh, so God speaks through the prophet. He call, he's calling Israel out for their dishonor of God. You see that um, right there in verse 6. A son honors his father, a slave his master or Lord. Um, if I am a father, where is the honor due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty. So God is saying to them, do you remember who I am? Verse 6, I am, I am your Lord. I am your father. Uh, at the end of the passage in verse 14, he will remind them, I am your great king. This is who I am. Have you forgotten who I am? Uh, and then as Malachi goes, there are these, these sort of, they're called, some of the commentators call them disputations or discourses. There's six of them throughout the book. And, uh, Angelo did the first one last week. It's, it's these calls and responses, these sort of questions with a response. Um, this is the second of the six. Uh, 
It's where God almost in his dialogue, he gives voice to what Israel may be saying or what he knows is in their heart. Uh, Israel raises a protest, but how have we dishonored your name? Verse 7, God answers, by offering defiled food on my altar. Then you see Israel comes back. Um, how have we defiled you? So it reminds me a little bit of, certainly not anymore, my kids are past this, but you know that, that uh, breaking of the rules, right? Well, did I really break the rule? Um, the room is... is Technically, I cleaned it, right? I did the activity of cleaning. Um, you know, there, there's just this back and forth. And, uh, and what, what's going on here about the food that's being defiled, defiling, the, uh, dishonoring the God's, God's name? Uh, this is the food and the altar that are mentioned here. Uh, they're, they're, it's also in this passage, uniquely, it's referred to the Lord's table. Don't get confused. It's just, they're using, Malachi's using them interchangeably. The, the table or the altar um, these are sacrifices. It's a reference to temple sacrifices um, on the altar. And, and, and what you need to know about, about Israel, of course, is that the temple is the center. We talked about British life, the center of British life. The temple worship is the center of, of the life of Israel. Uh, and, and the purpose of the temple is that God may dwell there with his people and that then Israel would be able to worship and meet with God there. The, t- the tent is called the tent of meeting. Not for some abstract, strange reason. And so that the people might meet there with God. And at the center of that center, there's, there's an altar for worship. Where sacrifices are offered. Now, you may be asking, why would, what is with the sacrifices? Why is offering an animal seen as worship? Uh, as honoring God's name? Uh, just take a step back with me. And, and think about what, what's going on in the temple. Uh, God, it's, it's, about, it's about who God is. God is perfectly holy, as, as Kira read in our story. And what does holy mean? It means uh, set apart, utterly unique. God is totally and utterly unique and set apart. He's perfect in holiness. There is nothing else like our God. Amen. He is the creator of heavens and earth. All those pictures we've been seeing on the, is it the web, uh, where's my, where am I web, uh, is it the web telescope? Yeah, thank you, Rob, I knew you'd know. Uh, God is the creator of all of those things. He is, he is utterly awesome and holy, and he wants to dwell with his people. In other words, holiness wants to dwell with unholiness. Perfection meets imperfection. Uh, the, the folks at the Bible Project, if you're familiar, have, they've come up with a really great metaphor to help you understand this. Um, w- one of the ways to think about God's holiness is that it's like the sun. Uh, and I encourage you afterward, you can go watch their video on holiness. It's, um, it's far more visually appealing than my description of it. But uh, holiness, God's holiness is a lot like the sun. The sun is utterly unique in our solar system. The sun is awesome in its power, um, it, it, it's, and it's also life-giving. Without its light... The earth would literally die, as far as I understand what the sun does for us. Um, but, but, but also, what else is true about the sun? It's extremely dangerous to get close to it. There are no tours to the sun. And, and that's not because the sun is evil. It's dangerous because it's so good, because it's so life-giving. Right? And that's, that's the metaphor, Stand that, that's God's holiness. 
It is utterly powerful and life-giving, and therefore, you cannot just simply walk up to it. It's because it's so good. And so to go to the sun, if we ever do, I don't know, maybe there's somebody in here who will figure out a way for that to happen, um, you'd have to be properly prepared in some way or another. I would imagine there would have to be some sort of protective clothing or some sort of, you know, something to protect you. Um, and that, that then, so now let's come back. That is what's happening in the temple. That is what's happening in the sacrificial worship. Uh, the, the, the system that God has given in Leviticus and Deuteronomy is a means by which God's people can come into the awesome power of God's holiness and survive. And so the people are told to offer a pure and unblemished animal for an impure life. And what the animal represents then is a blameless substitute who pays the cost for a guilty people coming near to a holy God. So, they, so I really want you to get this. And somehow this thread gets in our thinking somehow. The sacrifices are not for a bloodthirsty God. God is not bloodthirsty. And I know it can be confusing because we think about, we hear about sprinkling blood and it's like, what, God, what is going on? Um, it's not to appease a bloodthirsty God. The animal sacrifice is the means for them to honor God as holy, recognize their need to be cleansed, and then quite literally so that they can stay close to the one who is the source of all life. That's what the sacrifices are for. And so a blameless, spotless, imperfect, uh, a perfect sacrifice, a blemished animal, represents that. So, so now we go back, right? We did just a little background work. Now, what is God's charge against the people? Why is it so reprehensible that they would offer uh, an, a blemished sacrifice? It's, it's a, in effect, it says, God, we found another center of life. We no longer need you. That's, that's what it's saying. That's what it communicates. Their view of God is diminished. And then, as a result... They're, they're, you know, we talk a lot about the, the vertical and the horizontal. As a result of their, their, their dishonoring God, they now become broken within themselves. They forget who they are. They no longer see themselves as imperfect and vulnerable before, before God's holy people. people. Uh, and this is, let's, let's just move it out of like, maybe it's a little too conceptual at this point. Imagine the Israelite going out into their flocks among their animals. And looking at the various animals, they, they need to bring a sacrifice to God. And they're surveying, they know their animals. Now, and so I know some of you raise chickens. You know your chickens by name. Um, some of, I've heard of people who bring them into their house and put diapers on them. There's a whole thing. Um, but you know, your, you know your animal. I know not people that I know of here, by the way. I'll just, <laughs> sorry. Chick, but... You know your animals. An Israelite would have known their flocks. They would have known the animals that they had intimately. And, and so the, the thought process of walking through your herds and knowing you need to bring an unblemished sacrifice to God and yet knowingly choosing the one that is partially blind, knowing the choo knowingly choosing the one that will probably be dead in a week because it's sick. And placing your hand on that animal and knowingly taking that animal to the temple. A healthy animal would have been immense, of immense value. It would have meant their livelihood. 
It would have meant their security. And so worship then became, when God was decentered, worship became, moved from thanksgiving and joy, as you heard in the text, to an annoyance, to a burden. A burden to be satisfied or, or unloaded without joy. Verse 13, and you say, what a burden. And you sniff con- at, at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. And so then think about this, the individual among their flocks, but then think about as a community how this broke down, the vertical among them. Uh, they began to lie one, to one another. There's a, it's an active conspiracy to dishonor the Lord. I bring you my blemished animal. The priest's job is to not accept that because the priest's job is to intercede and make sure that the people are right before God. So now the priest is in on it, accepting this blemished animal before God. So in a sense, the, the, church, the church was open and full on Sunday, um, but there was no honor toward the Lord. Uh, apathetic worship is the kind that only exists in a performance one day a week. And God says in verse 10 that if that is the kind of worship that, that his people will bring, he says it's actually better for you to close the doors of the church. It's better for you to close the temple than dishonor me with, your, with that half-worship, with that apathetic worship. That's quite, a, that's quite a thing to land on me this morning. <laughs> it's better for me to be out of a job than for us to gather together with a dishonoring worship of the Lord. Uh, modern people, I know, I know that none of you have, have visited a temple to offer a sacrifice um, any time recently, but, but like the Israelites I think we too, and I think you know this, can also just become merely churchgoers. Uh, how, how, the question then comes to us, how then do we assess the flocks of our life? How are you moving among your possessions and your time and your resources? What, are you, what, what, what you're doing with your money, what does it tell you about what and who is at the center of your life? Uh, and, and if, if you see the dishonor of God, you, you, the, the, the taking of less for him, you, you may be in that gap, in that spiritual apathy. Uh, I, I can remember, I, I, this is sort of an instinct in all of us. It's sort of the, the sinfulness in all of us. Uh, I can remember as a child, uh, when it came, I had matchbox cars. I don't know if anybody had matchbox cars. And I think it was the matchbox, car, matchbox cars that eventually developed this cool thing where um, if you hit the side of it, the one side would turn and look like it was dented. Um, it was the coolest car. I don't know if those are matchbox. But anyway, uh, friends would come over. We'd play with cars. And I remember distinctly keeping the, the cooler car that had the flipping dent thing on it from my friends so that I could be the one to play with that when it came time to play. Uh, it's just one of the to- – re- but I just distinctly remember as a child, I, I, friends would come over to play, and I would keep the coolest G.I. Joe – for myself, and the one with the broken hand, my friend could have that, right? And, and so ultimately that whenever the battle came, my guy would always win, right? That was sort of the, that, but there is something in us that, and it would steal away, it would actually steal away from the joy of playing with friends uh, because, because the, the game was sort of rigged, right, in a way. I was giving less than to my friends. I grasped what was best from others, and, and it, it spoiled it. It spoiled it. Uh, it. It's a silly illustration, maybe, but, 
But it is an indication of our hearts, isn't it? Uh, that there is something in us that wants to keep what's best from others, that wants to keep things to ourselves, that is afraid that if we give it away, we'll somehow lose out. So as you consider your possessions and your money and your time and the work of your hands, um, do you have a heart, mind, soul, and strength that wants to honor God with all that you have? Are you, or are you freely offering it back to God? Do you generously give God the first fruits out of your paycheck? Have you offered up your home and your food for caring for others and attending to the poor and the hungry and the widow and the orphan? Or have we collectively sort of decided to offer God sort of the fleeting edges of our life, the less than, the stuff that we can do without, it's extra. These are the questions that Malachi should be provoking in us. What you do with your wealth and your possessions and your time is as much an indication of what's at the center of your life as your religious practices and rituals. Now, um, I think that if you're like me, there, there's definitely some conviction in those questions. Uh, but, but also, there's a sense in which it's not always so cut and dry, right? Uh, and, 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 and also, if we're talking about apathy, the very nature of apathy is that your response to those questions might be something like, okay, I'll just, yes, I'll offer sort of the, the slightly less blind animal next time, right? Um, or I'll add $5 onto the missionary giving that I do once a month. You, you can sort of move the needle a little bit. And by the way, go ahead and do that. I'm not saying you shouldn't uh, do that. But apathy sort of moves in... in in ways that don't really change the center of who we are. God is after the center of who you are. He wants all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength to be devoted to him. Uh, maybe, maybe another way to get at it, if, if you've thought through your, your possessions and your, the things you have in your life, uh, and it's another way that Malachi goes after it here, uh, who or what has the power to bring shame to you this week? Uh, that, that's, that's what God's after in verse 8, right? When he says, when you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? And he says, try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Of course, no, because there's a sense in which I would never dishonor this person because that would bring great shame into my life. So where is the place of honor in your life such that if you were to fall short of it this week, it would bring you humiliation? Who have you elevated to a place of judgment that if they were to criticize you today or if they were to, to look down upon the work that you've done this week, that that would be crushing to you? These are ways that you can get at who or what is at the center of your life. Uh, I remember uh, in my, my first year of teaching, um, I part of a practice of, of teachers, which I'm actually, it's interesting um, to work in jobs where this isn't a, a, a common practice. You're, you're frequently visited by people who are just evaluating you all the time and then giving you detailed feedback about what you're doing wrong. Uh, it's sort of wonderful and horrible all at the same time. But in my first year of teaching, um, 
I, I was at a very difficult school, a lot going on, my room was kind of crazy, and I remember this assistant principal came in to evaluate an assessment I had to, given to my students. And, and there's, so there's nothing wrong with wanting to do well in, in, in my job, right? And there's nothing wrong with wanting to me keep a job so I can support my family. But, but what, what was happening is, as I watched him, I, and I'm looking back, I realized he had my life in his hands. His, what he was going to say about how well I was leading that class had the ability to crush me utterly as I watched him. I was completely captivated to his opinion. And so, so that's, that's what he said. Would you offer, would you offer this to, your, to a governor? Who in your life is that, that governor? Who is the one who you need their opinion? You need their approval. Of course, um, what I hope you're hearing from Malachi, what you hope you're hearing from this word is, of course, we all fall short. Uh, we will. The nature of who we are is we will always have struggle with apathetic worship, with a divided heart. Um, and yet there's good news. There's freedom in worship this morning. Uh, and, and I just want to, even in this passage, there's a call to grace. God's call, God's God's difficult and hard-to-hear call is actually a call of grace. He wants to call the people back to the temple, to the right worship of, of God. Um, even Leviticus 17 tells us that even the sacrifices that God provides for them to give is a gift from God. So to return back, to, co- to go back to worship, um, it's not an effort of the people to, to beckon God to them, but a means by which the God of love gives his people so that his holy, life-giving, protecting presence might dwell with them. He's calling them back to a life of sharing with him in his presence. And this is, this is um, there's more grace for us even today. Uh, I hope you've been, you've been waiting, you've been seeing, you know that the, imperfect, the, the, the unblemished, perfect sacrifice that the, that the Israelites offered, we now know and have the, the, the perfect sacrifice of all, the, the final sacrifice of all sacrifices that we look to this morning. Uh, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the beautiful, breathtaking fulfillment of God's mission to be with his people. He, he comes not giving us a new set of temple instructions. We will be slaughtered. We will, there, no animals will be slaughtered this morning. Because Christ has given himself. Amen? Christ has already given himself for you on the altar, on the cross. Jesus was the true Israel. He honored the Father and delighted to do his will in a way that we cannot in ourselves. He gave himself for a once and for all sacrifice. He took on himself the corruption of all of us on the cross. And by his blood, the cost of our desecration of ourselves in the world has been paid, and his blood, and by his blood we are made pure. Uh, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, day after day, every, every priest stands and performs his, rich, his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices, which can never completely take away sin. But when this priest, this Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time he awaits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. 
So, so what's the freedom of worship? What's the, what's the, the latter sort of out of apathy? Uh, we dwell upon the one who gave all, the one whose perfect sacrifice for us gives us life. And, and then by the Spirit, by the Spirit of God in our, in our lives, we move from a life of needing to earn to a life of receiving. That's, 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 brothers and sisters, that's the life we're called to as we look to Jesus. We move from a life of earning to a life of receiving. And there's kind of a death that comes when you convert from a life of earning to a life of receiving. Um, it means this week accepting that, that nothing you can do can add a single measure of God's love for you. There is nothing you can do this week to add a single measure of God's love for you. And this is, this is um, I, I just want to press this a little bit. It's particularly true in a society that worships at the feet of time, uh, a, a society in which busyness is a virtue. Uh, God, God wants you to live a life of receiving his grace not of trying to earn it. And so that, that's, there, there's freedom in that. There's a freedom that the Christian has. Uh, you see that quote from Marva Dawn. She's saying it tongue-in-cheek, I hope you realize. Christian worship is a royal waste of time. Get it? Come on, royal. Get it? It's a royal waste of time. It is in the face of our culture of busyness and productivity, what we're doing here is, is a bit of a waste of time. And yet that, that is precisely what it means to move to a life of receiving rather than a life of earning. And so, uh, teenagers, I hesitate to point you out because adults are just as prone to this, but if you find yourself being bored in church uh, or in worship or in prayer, first of all, that's everybody. There are no super Christians who are not ever bored. Um, but, but you're actually on the edge of worship because what you're realizing is that, yes, indeed, you're not earning or making or creating anything that will add on to God's love for you as you worship. You're receiving the gift of God's grace and love for you. It is, in its nature, sort of a boring activity in that way from the world's point of view. I hope you get my meaning in this. Worship is wonderful and thrilling and awesome. But it's also completely, it completely uh, critiques the world that says you always have to be making and creating and earning and being entertained. And, and worship of God says, I'm no longer earning, I'm receiving. What secularism might call a waste of time, you will begin to treasure. And your, your affections will begin to grow for the one who you adore. You become like a child again as Christ calls us to, free from a life that is to be earned. And so finally, um, just in closing, uh, the mission of worship. Uh, the, the mission of worship, you're not called to just live a bored life. Um, the irony of worship is that the more time you waste giving to, to, uh, of your life to honor God, the more life-giving you'll actually be to the world, the more productive you'll be for the kingdom. And that, that, that's what's going on as God declares the fact that he will be worshipped among the nations. 
that his name will be feared among the nations. Uh, a worshiping community will proclaim the praises of God such that all people from every tribe and nation will come to know him. A worshiping community is fundamentally an evangelizing community. Uh, and so just, just two things to maybe contemplate and think about this week as you think about what, what's at the center of my life? How do I move out of, out of this, this apathy? Um, first, I, I would invite you to, to dedicate yourself to wasting time here on a Sunday morning. I'm going to keep using this phrase because I like it because it shocks us a little bit out of our, out of our, um, out of our, our need for pr- productivity. Uh, a week of sacrificial living and failing at sacrificial living finds its beginning and end here where we reorient ourselves to the life-giving presence of God for the weary. We remember the promises of God's forgiveness and his restoration of desperate sinners here every Sunday. We speak about it together. We sing songs about him. We read the truth of his words, and we embody, as we'll do after the service, we embody his presence to one another. We become a kind of temple, as the scripture describes us, living stones where God's very presence is with us. And then finally, um, as you move out into this week, uh, I would just ask you, what, what does it look like for you to live an unearned life? How will you live a life in which you're not earning God's love? As you move uh, through this week, as you move through your flocks and your fields of work in your home and in your community, how can you draw yourself to to the center of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and all you possess? How can you draw this God who loves you into the center of all that? I would just exhort you to, to not be afraid to be clear and obvious about it. Um, to weave in worship into everything you're doing in your life. Uh, If you've gotten away from the practice of it, before every time you eat, give thanks to God who has provided for food for your table. Um, I would invite you to go, what is the most treasured place in your home? What is the seat that everybody loves to sit in? What is the center, what is the table that you all love to sit at? I would invite you to go to those places, place your hand upon them, and thank God for them and offer them up to him. Be really obvious with your heart about where all of your possessions truly belong. I would invite you to, every time when you sit down at your desk, for my my laptop workers, my people, I know many of you now, you sit at a screen all day. When you place your hands on the laptop, devote your day to the Lord before you open it. Open your hands before the Lord and say, Lord, I give you this day. Be obvious with your heart. Students, before you open your notebook in class, Lord, I give you this day. I give you my work. All that I have, I give to you. And continually direct your heart toward the one who loves you. Let me, let me, I just want to lead you in prayer as a way of closing. The worship team can come forward. This is a prayer of St. Ignatius. Um, and I'm just going to pray each line and let it linger for a moment as you pray. Pray with me in your heart. Let us turn to the Lord. Take, Lord. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my memory, 
my understanding, my entire will. All that I have and call my own. You have given it all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Let's, let's stand together and sing.
Amen. Josh, thank you for the word this morning. Just thinking about this word and thinking about my own heart and how so 